So good morning, everyone. Uh, we're just waiting for one more speaker. Uh, they will be uh, here shortly. So uh, I'm just going to start, and uh, we'll wait until they come. Um, we've done many CPI spaces uh, now. Uh, uh, we've had the opportunity to look back retroactively on how the Fed has performed, given sticky inflation, uh, how they may have broke things, and uh, a world controlled by monetary policy. It's been really great to see so many of our speakers here grow over that time as well, and how their expertise uh, becomes so recognized. So with that, I want to welcome everyone for starting their morning with us. Grab a coffee if you can. I'm Unusual Wales, and I'm happy to have Nicholas help lead the conversation. Nicholas, if you can. Good morning, everybody. So before we get started here with some introductions on our panelists, I just want to say to all of our panelists today, I like to keep our spaces very open, kind of fluid. So if you have anything to add to any topic being discussed by another panelist, please feel free to use the little Twitter emoji to raise your hand and give your two cents. The only request that I have is that we stay muted while others are talking just to avoid any overlap in audio. So with that said, let us dive right into some introductions here. So first off, we've got a regular visitor here on our spaces, Joseph Wang, the Fed guy. Just want to welcome you back, Joseph. You've always been our go-to Fed guy. He headed the trading at the Fed's open desk, has a great introductory book on central banking called Central Banking 101, and is the CIO at Monetary Macro, which just launched a bunch of macro courses. How are you doing, Joseph? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks so much for inviting me, Nick, and the usual Wells. It's great to be here. Great to see many other familiar panelists, and great to welcome Michael Ashton, too, someone whom I've followed and learned from on inflation. Really looking forward to hearing uh, all the thoughts of the panelists. I, too, am very excited per usual, Joseph. And since you brought him up, Michael Ashen, a.k.a. the inflation guy, an expert on all things inflation-related, a fund manager, RIA, and inflation consultant. He heads the Inflation Guy blog and Inflation Guy podcast. And honestly, much as Joseph was saying there, I can't think of anyone else that would be a better voice to help us understand the macro environment surrounding inflation than him. Welcome, Michael, and thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me, and, and thanks to Unusual as well. I, I no pressure or anything. I mean, normally in this half hour before CPI, I'm busy trying to to uh, uh, relax a little bit and, and not get all keyed up, and this is not helping. I'm just, just going to say that, but uh, <laughs> I appreciate all the kind words, and I'm looking forward to the discussion. Looking forward to hear your input. Thank you, Michael. Next, we've got the last bear spanding, another friend of the spaces. Last bear is an expert on markets where he writes about monetary policy in his weekly Substack. If you're not subscribed to that Substack, folks, go do that since he cannot share it on Twitter with the links issue going on. Welcome back, last bear standing. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Always a pleasure to be here on the panel. And again, looking forward to the discussion this morning. So thanks. And thanks for coming, as always, Last Bear. Next, we've got Pedro da Costa. Pedro needs no introduction, truly, since you probably have heard him in Federal Reserve meetings or listened to his great podcast called Fed Speak. He's the Federal Reserve correspondent and head of policy for the Americas at MNI Market News. How's it going, Pedro? 
Good morning, everybody. Really nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Happy CPI Day. And uh, looking forward to the discussion. Looking forward to it as well. So, folks, we will have one more speaker joining us later. Never mind. He's here now. And Twitter kicked him again. But I'll give him his introduction anyway. We'll get him up here. Jem Carson, our incumbent Jam Croissant here on Twitter in the FinTwit space. Jem is a leading volatility expert and can explain the ins and outs of Charm, Vanna, and how options change the market. He's the founder of Kai Volatility, which you should subscribe excuse me, which you should subscribe to immediately and check out his speaking on YouTube and Spotify. Always love having Jem up here. How are you doing, Jem? Good. Thanks for having me having me guys good morning sorry i was running a little bit late uh excited to, to a big one indeed and thank you all for coming as usual so i want to give a little bit more backdrop i know whale gave us a nice little intro there as well but i'm gonna pick up from there and dive right into things here so before we begin just a real quick overview of where we are the previous fomc showed us a 25 basis point rate increase. The last CPI came in at 6.7% year over year. March GDP at 2.6%, the previous being 3.2%, with forecasts for April's slotted for 2.7%. And FedWatch is saying we have a 70% chance increase of a 25 BIPs, 30% of pause. The jobs market remains strong, despite what Fed members are saying. And some are speculating that the banking fears that have plagued much of 2023 are coming to an end, actually. So I do want to dive into that banking conversation. But first, how are we feeling about CPI and the Fed's handling of inflation today? Projections range from 5.1% to as high as 5.4%. So how are we feeling? Let's start with you, Joseph. Hey, so when I look at what's happening in the market, I, I think that the market is kind of just one big trade. And the trade is that the Fed is going to aggressively cut rates later in the year. You can see that in how different the Fed's expected path of policy based on their dot plot is, There's, which is saying about 5%, and they're going to hold throughout the year. And the market implied interest rates, so from short-term interest rate futures, is saying that uh, the Fed is going to cut aggressively, maybe up to 100 basis points by the end of the year. And that rate cut trade is is everywhere. So you can see equities going higher, rates going lower, dollars selling off, gold and silver going higher. So I look at the market right now as just one big trade centered around this uh, Fed rate cut trade. And when the when you ask the Fed, so we've had a spate of Fed speakers this past week and uh, yesterday, and they're saying they're looking at this and they have a lot of explanations for why the market implied path so different from their own one of their ex one of their explanations is that the market is pricing in a much rosier inflation path than their own expectations that the market is thinking inflation is going to go uh, a lot lower towards two percent faster than their own than the fed's projections and that's why they're pricing rate cuts so cpi prints like today and going forward are going to give a lot more information to try to help us understand whether or not the path of inflation is more as the Fed expects, that is to say, it'll remain sticky for the for the coming months, or it's going to go down quickly, as you can, as some people think that the market is pricing in. So I think that's why the CPI events have become so important. And it's definitely something that um, 
I want to hear more from the panelists about because I don't sp specialize in the nitty gritty of the CPI components. So I'm uh, looking forward to hearing everyone else's thoughts. So Michael, I'd really love your expertise here with inflation. And again, thank you for coming and lending that expertise to us today. So historically, inflation has been relatively low since 1980. So Michael, can you walk us through the factors behind that and why things are starting to look different now? Do you see a return to that 2% inflation mark given all the nitty gritty? Well, I think the answer is that um, one of the things that that we know about inflation is that um, you can look back and you can see that spikes in inflation, even in core inflation, um, I guess, I guess it's sort of the definition of spike, you know, tend to be sort of short lived. Um, if you have some weird one off that happens in either direction, then it can get, you know, eventually you'll get, it'll get washed out of the data. You know, a couple of years ago we had, you know, uh, cell cell phones, cellular telephones um, was a massive uh, caused a massive decrease in core inflation, and but it was it was the only thing that sort of happened. When we get these broad um, these broad increases, and especially when they they've persisted for long enough, then they tend to sort of feed into into themselves. And and one of the places you can see that. Um, is in core services x uh, shelter which is where kind of all the wage people live and what and so what happens is once you have inflation that's that's high enough for long enough you start getting this wage price feedback um, and that makes it really hard to to push things back down and that's you've heard the fed and all the cool kids now call it super core um, talking about how that's really what they need to see start to decline um, I, I I think that the market is very optimistic about about how quickly inflation is going to fall back to the Fed's target. Um, I you know I I don't think we're going to get to two percent you know certainly this year or next year um, on on any of the important figures. We still have median inflation is still rising at seven point two percent. So I think um, I think that that's a much longer path and. And honestly, I'm not sure the Fed can do a whole lot about it other than continue to try to contract the money supply. Thank you, Michael. Does anybody have any comments to what Michael said before I move on to the next question? I'll jump in with one brief comment here. Um, I think for a while now, almost 40 years, <laughs> um, we've uh, we've had a game which is two-dimensional where – uh, ultimately, it's been a cyclical story. How? What is the economy going to do, and what does that mean about mean for inflation and rates? Right. So, very simple game. Any any statistical model that looks at any recent history will look at uh, kind of what is likely to happen to the economy, and then model kind of what happens to rates. That cyclical game, given some of the secular effects of inflation, um, now has a competing force, right, a secular force, um, which comes from, again, as I've belabored, you know, a, a populist kind of push that drives fiscal spending, as well as the other things that come along with that, deglobalization and conflicts globally, et cetera. Those items are 
not in the calculus of markets, right? The market assumes that if we get a cyclical downturn, if we do get the recession that is expected, that we will get uh, inflation coming down to the Fed's 2% target. Um, that I am betting, actually, uh, that that uh, that is not going to be the case. So we sit at a very important crossroads as this kind of impending recession comes through, as the lack of monetary policy works through the system in the next three to six months. So I think that's just an important. I just want to frame that um, as we kind of walk through these conversations. Thank you, Jim, and thank you, Michael. So for the next question here, recently the New York Fed <clears throat> mentioned the median one-year-ahead inflation expectation of 4.7%. And on the topic of a shift from credit tightening conditions, they said, quote, is not seeing a clear sign yet, as there's still a lot of work to do in order to dampen inflation. Pedro, you recently commented on this in a tweet. What are your thoughts? Will we see a shift, or is there still too much in the up in the air to make that determination, Pedro? I thought it was an, it was an interesting comment from uh, New York Fed President John Williams that he wasn't seeing clear signs of credit tightening. I think the Fed went. I think the Fed essentially was engulfed in the same panic that market participants were in. To the point that, as we know from Chair Powell's press conference, they they actively debated actually pausing at the last meeting. But now that the market seems to be kind of over the immediate uh, urgency of that banking stress, the Fed seems inclined to keep raising interest rates for now in the face of still high inflation numbers. So I think today we're going to be looking for, you know, at, at the month on month core number as much as anything else. There's an expectation that you could get a fourth straight month of 0.4% gains, which is more than Fed officials are comfortable with. Um, and going back to what Joseph said about market, the market pricing and large cuts in the second half, one important question to ask is why is the market making that bet, right? Is it because of there's going to be some kind of benign, immaculate disinflation that comes with the soft landing and with unemployment staying low? Or is it because of a market crash that's going to bring that's going to make things so dire that the Fed will be forced to cut. The implications of the answer to that question for asset values are obviously very different. And so I think the range of outcomes given this credit crunch has why the, the possibility of a credit crunch rather that people are watching for has, has widened. And therefore that makes the inflation numbers somewhat more backward looking than they usually are, because we, we just don't know what kind of a drag there might be over the next few months. And it could take several months for this to kick in. And we don't know how, what kind of a drag in economic activity and inflation this, uh, these banking troubles are going to have. And lastly, I would take issue with the notion that the, the sort of crisis is over and everything is contained. Uh, because, you know, I don't, I don't know, the, the, more, the, smart, the smart people that I talk to all the time don't have that sense. Former regulators, current policymakers, there's a sense that we're kind of still in the eye of the storm and we're experiencing a moment of calm and what's still a turbulent time. So I would watch out for further shoes to drop down the line. Thank you, Pedro. Does anybody have anything to add any agreement or disagreement with Pedro's response? Yeah, I yeah, think, I, go ahead. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I think, I think I agree with the last point um, that, that Pedro was making that um uh, at least from the regulators, regulators' perspective or the Fed's perspective, uh, they don't view us as being 
sort of out of out of the storm um, when it comes to financial stability and, and banking concerns. Um, and I think that they they probably are much more concerned about that behind the scenes. And obviously, they are willing to message publicly. Um, obviously, they're always going to say that the banking system has proper liquidity and uh, capital and, and all that. But I think that um, what we saw was that the SVB issue really did seem to catch regulators and the Fed off guard. Um, and obviously, there is a direct link between policy decisions, um, both being, you know, the how duration and yields affect uh, the bonds, bond portfolios of banks, but also, uh, you know, how uh, short term rates influence money market fund flows and deposit flows. I think that uh, there's a lot of hesitation. It, like, it, it's almost like they stabilized the Jenga tower. Um, but now everyone is kind of looking at it with a with a side eye. Um, and so I think given the direct relation between, um, you know, these monetary policy channels and uh, financial stability, I think that the Fed um, has shown that it is much more concerned with potential financial instability than it is um, with inflation when it really comes down to it. So I think that that is going to, you know, continue to be a bearing on, on the, the decisions that come out over the next month or two. Uh, and obviously inflation, uh, if we have a soft reading, that would help the Fed's case for a pause. Um, if, it's a, if it's a strong reading, I, I think it's tough for the Fed to do that and, and maintain credibility. Um, but I do think that their inclination, if, if they could have it their way, would be to pause at this point. Jim, saw your hand there. And yeah, uh, I'd, so also, I'd also, Jim, like to get your thoughts on just kind of broad, we'll dive a little deeper into it, but just kind of your broad thoughts on volatility conditions at the moment as well. Yeah, absolutely. Before I get to that, though, the um, I think it's important to note that it's not about the banking crisis specifically, that it's what that means. It's uh, it's a canary in the coal mine. It's a representation of the lag of monetary policy. You know, the Fed has taken interest rates up 5%. Equity markets in the U.S. represent about 40 trillion dollars right uh globally it's about 80 trillion dollars we're waving our hands at it but the whole set of long assets right globally is closer to 450 trillion so equities are only a part of a much bigger set of, of assets and, and most of those other assets and it's true even with buybacks and equities operate on a massive lag to, to monetary policy, real estate, right? We can talk about that all day long, about why, why hasn't commercial real estate come down as much as people expect. Um, private equity, venture capital, go on and on about these. These all operate on a significant lag. It's not about the monetary policy that's coming. We already know how much has been put through to date and how much of it has yet to work its way through the system. And so this is why the Fed always kind of goes too far is they have to they you know they they have to look at something in the future, um, and decide to stop um, at the first sign of problems. So, um, you know, in the next three to six months, just look at buybacks. You know, in Q1, buybacks were almost in line with buybacks from last year, which were at record levels. But if you take a look forward, we can very clearly see that buybacks fall off a cliff. That's just another example of the the equity demand and what sits out there. Um, uh, in the future. Lastly, I would say people aren't looking enough at the role of uh, risk off, you know, the move to, to bonds, uh, uh, particularly of, of short duration, um, in order to, as, as, a, as a flight to quality, a flight, flight to safety, right? 
And what that's done in terms of putting a cap on rates as money has moved out of other asset classes. So I think that's played a significant role here as well. I don't see this as a risk on it. I do believe it is a eye in the storm, as Pedro has kind of uh, alluded to, and is really as much a function of, of those flows that we're talking about paired with um, broad positioning and preparing for um, a decline that's likely coming um, and that any counter effects that that usually plays, a reflexivity of that. So I'll, I'll stop there with that. And then in terms of all, just really quickly, um, that reflexivity is a perfect segue, right? Um, the, the reality is, as many people who listen to me know, that when people are hedging and preparing for a decline reflexively, um, there are effects in the options market as well as other, other places, but uh, particularly pronounced in, a, uh, in an options market that has gotten bigger and bigger over these years, that lead to counter-trend moves. The way a lot of often these secular declines begin, uh, if you go look at them, are with blow-off tops. Uh, even once information is known, even when worst-case scenarios are broadly understood, you can look at 2007, long-term, you know, uh, before the 0809 crash. You can look at 2000 into um, the final decline of the tech bubble. You can look at uh, even, uh, as I've mentioned, uh, Jan Feb 2020, right before the decline in Feb to March of 2020, all of these had moments of major countertrend moves um, at the at the end, and these happen as a function of reflexivity, of the function that people know that something is coming and are positioning accordingly. It is by definition hard to short a market. It is to profit from a vol event. A vol event does not happen when everybody is expecting it. So. Um, it, by definition, that is kind of where we sit at this at this moment, um, and, uh, and and what sits in front of us. Vol itself um, is often its lowest, right at its nadir, right before a spike, um, and, and that often happens because we slide to a very low vol, and eventually that finds support um, into a rally. We are beginning to see this longer-term vol support um, in a way we haven't seen it for several years. Um, and given how much positioning is in zero DTE and how poorly that Vega has worked relative to Gamma, we have seen a crowding out of Vega and into Gamma. Um, and there are many situations, again, 07 would be a great example, where Vega went significantly higher before a decline. Um, uh, 99-2000 would be another example. I would expect that uh, trend to continue. Thank you, Jim. Before I move on, does anybody have any comments on what Jim just said? All right, so last bear, I want to talk real quick about a recent publication from your Substack, wherein you said, quote, we need to stop talking about interest rates and start talking about balance sheet policies, citing the lack of discussion on QE and QT at the last FOMC meeting. On QT and liquidity concerns, you mentioned the notion of Operation Squeeze. The last bear, can you give us a breakdown of Operation Squeeze and how can this tactic, as you put it, offset the draining effect of QT? And do you think the rally in equity is related to that? Yeah, so I think on, I guess to, to kind of talk through the first part first, um, I've just been surprised at the lack of discussion generally up until this point uh, of this tight, tightening cycle um, that, you know, really basically all the discussion's been about rates and there's really very, very little commentary around um, QT and really the sort of liquidity effects of QT. Um, and I think that we saw some of that 
boil over with SVB and the, the banking crisis or whatever you want to call it over the past month um, sort of brought that into focus for a lot of people, how, um, you know, trapped liquidity in the reverse repo facility impacts bank liquidity, um, which is something that obviously we've talked about here in this spaces and I've been writing about for some time on Substack. Um, but I think that that is a larger driver of some of these financial stability concerns than interest rates. Absolutely. Um, and so I, I wanted to refocus conversation on uh, how the, the flows of money sort of impact bank liquidity and how that sort of plays a role in financial stability. And so there's a lot of different perspectives on the reverse repo facility. The, the good thing is that um, people are talking about it now, which I think is, is positive. I think everyone has a little bit of a different perspective on the best way to sort of move liquidity out of the reverse repo facility and back into sort of banks and, and the private market largely. Um, and so when I talked about operation squeeze, basically I, my suggestion was to reduce reverse repo counterparty limits um, in such a way to sort of target a specific amount that you would sort of force out of that facility. So the, the largest money market funds um, which are actually up against that limit of $160 billion per counterparty um, would be forced to sort of push money back into the banking sector um, as one way to sort of forcefully move liquidity out of the reverse repo facility back to banks um, rather than sort of giving banks these new liquidity facilities like, like we saw in March um, to sort of address um, an issue that I think is really driven by QT. Um, and so I know other people have different perspectives on that. Um, some people think that it's going to work fine the way that it is. Some people suggest that the Treasury should issue um, more Treasury bills to help sort of pull money out of the, the reverse repo facility. But I think the idea that I put out there was was sort of using counterparty limits as, as the mechanism to do that. So that's kind of a, a wonky conversation, but happy to go into it more here from discussion. I know Fed guy has some thoughts on that as well. Yeah, we'll for sure dive a little bit deeper into that um, with MMFs and reverse repos. But real quick, does anybody have any comments to what Last Bear was saying there? And we have CPI in about eight minutes, I believe. Well, I, I just want to say from the perspective of inflation, I, I completely agree. And it's it's delightful to hear somebody focus on balance sheet as opposed to rates because um you know, in the old days, those were all connected. The, the Fed moved its balance sheet as a way of moving rates, and so, and so those those were one policy. The fact that they're now, you know, they they don't have to be the same policy makes Fed watching very confusing. From the standpoint of inflation, we really don't care very much about about the price of money. We care about the quantity of money, and so that's really what we want to keep our eyes on. That's my kibitz. Well, Michael, my, that's actually. Oh, go ahead, Joseph. Oh, so just wanted to mention. I th I think my sense from from Fed speakers is that the Fed really doesn't like talking about its balance sheet or its QT program, in part because it doesn't really understand what works very well, and that's part of the impetus that they have in shrinking the balance sheet and relying more on the federal funds rate. Uh, <laughs> Because the federal funds rate, they feel like they understand better. And so they, they think of QT as something writing in the background. It's going to shrink no matter what happens. We want to shrink the balance sheet and get to some, back to something that we understand better. And I, I'd also like to make a note on the banking panic. 
Um, so some of the indicators that I watch seems to suggest that it's basically over. And what I like to watch, first of all, is the Fed's balance sheet when it comes to its emergency loans to commercial banks. So if you're a bank, the Fed is your lender of last resort. So if you have problems, you borrow from the Fed. And if you see the loans outstanding from the discount window and the uh, bank's new facility, overall, it, it's still it's still large, but it's trending lower and stabilizing. So that suggests that things are getting better. And another indicator that I like are prime money market fund flows. So a prime money market fund is a money market fund that can lend to banks. They had inflows for the past several months until we had that panic in March, and then you saw outflows. And then uh, as of last week, you see inflows again. So that tells me that depositors, investors are becoming more comfortable with the bank situation, and they're willing to, again, lend to banks. So that, again, suggests stabilization. And to Lassavir's point, uh, having a lot of more liquidity in the banking sector is definitely helpful when it comes to these liquidity panics. And there is a lot of liquidity in the reverse repo facility uh, that, that's not in the banking sector. But there are mechanisms through which it can flow back to the banking sector, and they're happening right now. One of them is through the federal home loan bank system. So the federal home loan banks are a bunch of government-sponsored enterprises whose job is to basically lend to banks. They're the lender of next to last resort. And they've been issuing a lot of debt that the money funds have been purchasing using funds out of the reverse repo facility. And what happens then is that money flows out of the reverse repo facility through the federal home loan banks and back to the banking sector. And I think that's been a pretty good channel over the past month in, in helping banks. Um, so th there are ways that it, it can help. It can uh, flow back to the banking sector. Thank you, Joseph. So both of your and Michael's comments kind of bring me into a good segue for my next question for Michael here. So Michael, you said on your Inflation Guy blog last month that, quote, it is important to remember that the impact on inflation of an incremental 25 or 50 bips hike is almost zero with possibly no effect at all. Is this true, Michael? Well, yeah, look, I mean, I think it's, it's, first of all, I should preface what I'm about to say by noting that I was, I've, I've been completely wrong about the Fed this entire way. I've, I've been a Fed watcher for 30 years and I was, I just completely blew this. I thought the Fed would tighten a hundred and then give up. Um, and so, but, but it is important to, to realize that we're not at 1% knowing that we need to go lots higher with interest rates at 5%. You know, in the Fed meeting, you know, the Fed isn't looking and saying, well, okay, we have to do at least a couple, you know, 300 more basis points to get to neutral. So, you know, we should, we need to make sure that, that we, we start with the assumption we have to do a lot. If the question is 5%, five and a quarter, five and a half, honestly, it just doesn't make that much of a difference in, in the grand scheme of things. And, and again, inflation responds more to changes in, in the amount of money in circulation than it does the price of the money. In fact, higher interest rates tend to cause higher money velocity, and so it tends to make the problem a little bit worse. But if you're talking about – if you really are concerned about the banking system, and I'm really not, but if you're really concerned about the banking system at all, and you're, you're trying to decide whether to do 25 basis points or not, you know, the 25 basis points is probably irrelevant. And so it's just signaling is all you're doing, and so you have to figure out what it is you want to signal. That's the reason the last meeting I kind of thought they would hike 25 because 
they wanted to signal they weren't terribly concerned. But that's a lot less clear now. I'm not really sure what the value of another 25 bips is. Thank you, Michael. Now, Pedro, any comments on what the panelists said so far, including about what Michael was just saying? And, and also, Pedro, could you give us some background on what some speakers have said, given a tighter job market and any comments from you, given Buffett saying Powell is doing an excellent job and is doing what is best for America on CNBC this morning? Uh, no particular comments on the latter. On the labor market, I think it's still, you know, a major challenge that the Fed doesn't want to talk about too much because it makes them look bad to say that job growth is too strong or wage growth is picking up too quickly. But I still think they see this tight job market as a major impediment to the achievement of their 2% inflation target. So, uh, so that's why I think that, you know, that's why the Fed is so focused on this super core measure is because they see core services, X housing as the place where, kind of the wage and employment dynamic is, is most likely to show itself. Uh, and, and I think, you know, as far as what the other panelists said, I think that, that now, now that we're approaching, you know, to, to Michael's point, now that we're no longer in the sort of we need to really catch up phase of the tightening and we're talking about like one or two more hikes potentially, I think there's an increasing division between policymakers, between those who think that, we might have a significant credit crunch and therefore we need to, you know, slow it down, if not pause altogether. And some of the more hawkish voices who think that uh, we've only just gotten into restrictive territory and we need to go take it a little bit further before we can we can halt. And so I think, you know, just as the last meeting was probably the, the most uh, the meeting that had the most internal debate before they actually made the decision. I think this upcoming meeting in May is going to be similar. Uh, I, I don't know if we'll have any dissents, but we're getting to the point where they might even, you know, it might make some sense to see some dissents as we we get to closer to what they see as the terminal rate. Thank you, Pedro. Does anybody have any comments on that? Will we wait for CPI numbers? By the way, the data should be out right now. Yep, we just eight thirty Eastern. It looks like it was right in line. Um, core is up 0.4, year on year is 5.6. Sorry, just looking at the spy chart this morning, and it really, it really seems to have liked CPI in the short term here. Uh, Michael, I see you unmuted there. Any comments? Yeah, well, I just want to say, as usual, the swap market got the, the inflation swap market got the number better than economists, at least with respect to the headline. Um, the inflation swap market came in essentially saying 0.1 is what we were going to get on on the headline and and um and so that's that's what we've gotten and the economists were more like a quarter you know a a a high two tenths i'm still looking at the core here yeah we'll give everybody a little bit of time to digest and feel free to chime in as you're kind of going through the numbers, anybody on the panel, feel free before we start moving into the next lines of questions. So year over year, 5.0% versus 5.1. And I think many, many analysts were projecting that 5.1. So with it coming in at 5 versus that projected 5.1, does that 0.1 mean anything? 
I think the the point the point one overall is obviously driven by continued disinflation across the energy components, and then the the core components still kind of staying at the same level that it has for the past four months, which is is higher than it was actually back in, in the fall of last year when the Fed started to uh, start to indicate that they were going to slow down at least on on the jumbo rate hikes. Um, so it, it is interesting to me that. As much as I actually do think that a pause is, is likely in the near term, um, maybe not this meeting, but but within the next two meetings, um, that that the Fed is actually okay with potentially pausing with with inflation this high, and I think that that's a product of a very unusual cycle and monetary policy in, in the years that have sort of preceded it. And I understand kind of how we got here, but it is a very sort of uncomfortably high core inflation level to sit at when you're talking about now sort of laxing monetary policy. And, and if for, I could for, come into that, I think that's why the Fed is so loath to even entertain the possibility of rate cuts this year, right? Because it's like, you know, we might not be wanting to hike any further, but we certainly don't want to reverse course anytime soon. And that's why I think it would take kind of a severe breakdown in financial conditions or in, in financial stability, if you will, for the Fed to, to actually reverse course by year end rather than rather than it coming from a slowdown in the economy. I think they would kind of welcome that and want to see that filter through and watch those inflation numbers keep coming keep coming down lower because the, the last thing that they want is for inflation to be stuck at four percent, you know, for one or two years and then they have to, to come in and, and hike again. So So I'm noticing the market reaction really is, you know, dollar down a lot, equities up, uh, rates down, uh, precious metals up again. So it seems to imply a very com more accommodative Fed. And, and I'd also note in line with what everyone else is saying is that, you know, so the market is going to be more comfortable pricing in more rate cuts, obviously. But so monetary policy isn't just toggling the overnight rate, but a lot of it is about the perceived path of policy. And so now that the market seems very convinced that uh, you know, Fed is going to be cutting rates later in the year, 10 years down a lot, you can see all sorts of borrowing rates like mortgage rates, uh, it'll be rates that corporations face, they can gradually over the coming weeks would also come down a lot. So you have a real potential of that things could reaccelerate. So in a few weeks, we could see mortgages with a five handle. And um, from what I see in the real estate market, things are already stabilizing to, to moving back up again. And you could easily see a, a replay of a uh, of what happened in January where rates came down a little bit and suddenly everything it took off again. Yeah, I, I agree with that sentiment. It, it feels like folks are sort of chomping at the bit to, for, for the, for the rate cycle to, to roll over and for mortgage rates to come down and touch so that they can go out and buy a home. And I think that's um, going to be the challenge is that I don't think that I think people would really like the fed to stop, Cut, to stop raising so that they can go and buy assets. And I think that's um, sort of part of the problem. So any other thoughts from our panelists here as spy gold and crypto all kind of rally here a bit? I do just want to point out that the core number was actually 0 0.053. So it actually was barely rounding up to 0.1. And that's part of what we're seeing in the reaction, I think. So you think that that dramatic roundup and and I guess dramatic might be a strong word, but do you think that rounding up from basically 0 0.05 to that 0 0.1 
carries kind of the significance behind some of this rallying we're seeing this morning in the pre-market, Michael? Yeah, I think if everyone came in looking for a quarter and they really got something which was two tenths lower than that on on core, I think that's um, you know that's that looks that looks very good. Now we'll, we have to look at the composition here, and that's what I'm busy combing through. Um, so hopefully I'll have a little, something more to say on that in a little bit. Sounds good. Thank you, Michael. Any other comments before I move on to the next questions here after the CPI numbers dropped? I guess I'm curious to hear maybe from the rest of the panel how folks are looking at the macro environment that, that we're sort of, you know, take, ignoring monetary policy for a minute. But the the jobs market, I think, you know, it has been very strong. I think it's it's still not weak, but it does so show sign of deterioration. Um, if you look at continued claims continuing to rise, war notices, job openings coming down, wage growth coming down. At the same time, we start to see after sort of the bump in January on a year over year basis, we start to see declines in consumer spending as well. I'm just curious about, about the R word, um, how folks feel about the uh, macro and whether that's um, coming into the Fed's perspective as, you know, as they're considering this, not just banking stability, but also sort of a true slowdown or recession. I think if we step away from this, okay, cyclically are things slowing down now and start looking into the future, um, you know, I think it's safe to say that given uh, the current political state of affairs, given that we're going into an election season, you know, a recession would probably be the absolute thing that could happen to it, the secular inflationary picture. At the end of the day, if we get kind of a economic narrative that allows for the, the money tap to kind of be pushed back open uh, going into election season, um, I think that only kind of perpetuates this kind of more macro cycle we're looking at. And I think, again, I think if people are looking at uh, today's, you know, number thinking, okay, this is great for inflation, they're missing the bigger picture in terms of what this likely means reflexively going forward. Hey, I, I do want to add a little more color on the number here. Um, my early guess at median month on month looks like a 0.4, which we would be dramatically down from what the recent medians would be. And that's because primary rents and owner's equivalent rent only came in actually slightly below 0.5% month on month. Now, what that is going to mean is that people are going to say, aha, the rental slowdown is here. And so and I don't know if that's true or not. It's one month and I tend not to get terribly exercise about one month, but that is the best rent number we've had in quite some time. And it is going to get people to, um, obviously that's in core services, including rents, um, but that's the biggest, slowest piece of, in, of the inflation number. And, and if rents start decelerating as the people who look at, you know, more uh, frequent, higher frequency data, uh, tell you they're going to, um, then that really does change kind of what core is going to look like going forward. It's still going to be very hard to get to point two or to get to two percent, but at least it turns the whale in the right direction. All right, so Jim, given your understanding of history, we've spoken a lot about 
the Fed's credibility. Jim, do you think their credibility gets restored given the quote unquote drop? In- my my view is is you know if you look again at sixty eight to eighty two, which is kind of again we keep referring to because that's the last period of inflation we can look at. Um, uh, if you look at that period, it's fairly clear that the what we're going through now is not a um, you know, is not something that is uh, a vanquishing of, of inflation. Uh, we had three recessions, 68 to 82. Uh, if you go look at a chart and are, are a student of that period, uh, you'll see that inflation went from 6.5% down to uh, just uh, around 3%, um, you know, after the first recession, which was a mild one, um, but then was ultimately met with more fiscal policy, as I mentioned, and, and led to interest rates uh, and paired with the increase in you know, the Vietnam War, et cetera, led uh, to a spike uh, as the economy reaccelerated to 10 and a half, 11. We did this again with a pullback to five per four and a half, five percent, the next deeper recession. But that's what a stagflation environment uh, means. It is not about the cyclical um, downturn in inflation that we are seeing that is occup- you know, that, that comes along with a, a slowdown in the economy. It's about the secular underlying effects of inflation and the regime in which we sit um, and what that means broadly for labor versus capital. Um, we are in a very different environment politically, uh, globally. Uh, you know, we are moving away from globalization. Populism, by definition, is local. Um, and uh, it is um, inefficient in terms of the use of capital and ultimately causes um, many problems for equity markets. So, again, I, I kind of started at the beginning of this with this highlighting the cyclical versus secular effect. I, that is the number one thing people must keep their eye on. Um, just because you have um, an expected kind of cyclical downturn and a slow in inflation that you would expect of that does not mean that this stagflationary environment is not still here um, and does not mean uh, that the next move won't be um, for more of what we've seen structurally. Um, you know, again, it's, it's about, uh, if anything, the cyclical uh, downturns are significant opportunities to play that, uh, to play that, especially once that a narrative like this inflation narrative becomes rooted. Um, you know, positioning matters. At the end of the day, um, you need people to get in camp deflation and get you know, to start to question that secular reality in order for these things to take the next leg higher. That is how these ultimately, you know, how markets work. Um, we're in the, we're in the, you know, the part of the, the cycle where we um, question, uh, you know, the, the secular trend and where positioning gets rebalanced. Does anyone have any other comments there uh, on what Jem said or, more broadly, the credibility of the Fed. No, I, I think Jim makes a really good point in that when you're talking about, let's say, looking at future trends, the politics and the culture of the country play a really big role. And this is because the state, uh, the let's say the government, has the ability to print money. And so if you have a culture where people are wanting more free stuff, they're wanting more support, more help from the government, and they perceive the government can help and the government wants to help, then you, you can get into a fiscal policy situation like they did in the 70s, where uh, because of all the 
benefits that the, that the state gives. You know, people have more money, they spend more, and so you have an inflation that is not driven by, let's say, agnostic market forces, but can be driven by political forces. And you see that happening throughout the country. I mean, recently, you know, the state of California is giving people money to buy houses because that's expensive, which of course makes the problem much worse. Uh, but this is something that plays out uh, throughout throughout our culture. And I would expect that there would be more uh, of a push to have more benefits for people because that's politically popular and, and that, that that's a structural shift in, in the politics and culture of, of how we operate. Thank you, more Joseph. Specifically, yeah, yeah, more specifically to your question of credibility, right? I don't think I addressed that directly. You know, uh, the loss of credibility in the cycle in the 68 to 82 period didn't happen right um, or, or uh, you know, until kind of the second leg higher. Um, and, and that's kind of a structural reality to how we think about things. Uh, you know, right now, everybody is at the point of the cycle where they are expecting the game to work like it has always worked, or not always, for the last 40 years has worked. Um, it is a departure from that trend that will ultimately begin to bring the Fed's credibility into question. And it is in that trend, that long-term, you know, in that lack of credibility that ultimately will take long-term, uh, you know, inflation expectations higher and that is ultimately the problem that perpetuates, that helps perpetuate a higher inflationary regime that brings demand forward, that allows people to, you know, uh, investors to uh, leverage uh, negative real interest rates to buy everything pinned down and ultimately force um, a higher for longer. Thank you, Jim and Joseph. So I want to take a little detour here back to the topic of banking in relation to the potential for recession. So I'd like to pick everyone here's brains on the profitability for banks with quarter one earnings just on the horizon with six of the largest U.S. banks reporting on the 14th here in two days. Many are speculating an earnings per share decline of 10% from the previous year. Eric Gordon of Brown Advisory is quoted saying, from a corporate earnings perspective, we're already in a recession. So panelists, and anybody feel free to chime in. Maybe let's start with Pedro here, given the, the topics you cover on your Fed Speak show. If banks do indeed have a challenging earnings this week, what sort of precedent will that set for the rest of the I think it'll just it'll just compound fears that uh, that we're going to have these kind of lagged, you know, we talk about the long and variable lags in the monetary policy. There's also long and variable lags, potentially shorter, but also long and variable between the time that a, you know, the banking turmoil takes place and, and the time that the credit crunch starts to, to hit. And so I think right now people are looking at like the Friday data, the H8 on, uh, on, you know, the, the flow of funds, and, and bank deposits, and people are all concerned about deposit flows. But there's also the concern that, you know, small businesses that rely on these community and regional banks that are now under stress are going to be deprived of credit altogether. It's not going to be an issue where they can kind of pay a premium and get their loans that they would otherwise get from the small banks, from the large banks. So if there's a freezing of credit in the small and medium enterprise sector, that could potentially lead to a much sharper slowdown in the economy later in the year. So 
at least from my, my macro perspective, that's kind of what I'll be watching for. And from Fed officials' perspective, there's the issue of how quickly does the second derivative is kind of how quickly does a credit crunch become disinflationary? There's a potential that maybe inflation is sufficiently embedded for now that inflation doesn't come down fast enough for them to be able to ease conditions in the way that markets are expecting. And so one of the ways that, and one of the reasons that I would, you know, caution market participants against betting uh, on an aggressive Fed rate cut path is just what we were talking about, the credibility issue. The Fed needs to not only reestablish its credibility, but maintain it through a potential reacceleration of inflation. And so that's what I'll be watching for, I'd say. Thank you, Pedro. Any other comments there? I'll just add to Pedro's point that um, from the weekly banking data, uh, it breaks it down into the credit, the loans made by big banks and loans made by small banks, where a small bank is any bank that's not within the top 25 largest banks in the U.S. <clears throat> and the weekly data shows that um, so far, uh, two weeks after the, uh, the, you know, the, the excitement in March uh, with Silicon Valley Bank, the large banks, the, the large banks haven't really changed the amount of loans they made. So it doesn't seem to be affecting large banks very much. The small banks, you do see, uh, I guess, a meaningful drop in, in loans made. But I'd also note that in the U.S., we're a huge country. We have over 4,000 banks and a few thousand credit unions as well. So the panic we saw seems to be focused mostly on, um, let's say, on the West Coast and maybe around New York City because that's where Signature Bank was. So I mean, banking panics have this contagious effect. That's just part of the country. And if you look throughout, I would, I would suspect that in other parts of the U.S., small banks may not be affected because uh, regional banks are ultimately local. And indeed, when I make comments about this on Twitter, I have all these people who work at small banks in, in uh, middle America or places who are not on the coast comment that they don't really see any, any issue on, on the uh, banking panic. And one other thing that I'll note is that in the U.S., a lot of the financing is done not through the banks, but through the capital markets. And when you are financing through the capital markets, the rates that you face are, are largely a function of where the tenure is. Now, even in the mortgage market, half of U.S. home mortgages are made through the capital markets. So when you have the tenure coming down to, look, looks like today we're going down a lot towards 3%, you're going to have people who are uh, going to be able to get mortgages that are, that are increasingly cheap. Um, because they don't get money from the banking sector, they get money through the capital markets, and capital market investors are looking at where the tenure is and pricing their what they're willing to accept on the EGC MBS. Thank you, Joseph. Any other comments on that before I move on to the next panel-wide question? I just want to make a general uh, comment about the whole banking crisis, and I put the crisis in quotes uh, here. You know. I think that, you know, obviously we all fight the last war. Everyone tends to fight the last war. And, and this this banking issue is so, 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 so different from the last one. And I think that, that you know, a lot of the commentary you see almost seems to anticipate it will follow a, it could potentially follow a similar path of sort of the dominoes falling. You know, the last, the last crisis was, 
understandably hard to to for for someone to catch because it involved very complex securities, right? Um, and and when the Fed started to tighten, it sort of you know pricked this asset bubble in housing, and that had all kinds of knock-on effects that weren't really anticipated. This you know the problem at at SVB could have been caught by someone with HP12C and a lick of common sense. It, it really wasn't. I mean, it was a, it's a duration question, which is about as plain as you can get. So. I I think it's it. I'm I don't speak to anybody directly in the Fed at the moment, but I I I suspect that at this point they have a really good idea of exactly the scale uh, of the problem, and I think that most outside observers have a decent sense of of what the scale and scope of the problem is. The other big difference, of course, is that the amount of uh, deposits and liquidity in the system that we're starting this crisis with is a lot higher than it was. Uh, going into the 2007-8 crisis. So um, it's just there's all kinds of reasons to not get terribly worried about this unless there is sort of a, a crisis of confidence that happens. And I don't really see a reason for a big crisis of confidence. That's, that's my, my two cents on, on the banking issue is I think that it's not likely to be something about. Thank you, Michael. So I, I do want to continue on this vein of thought. Um to last bear here, another worry held by many regarding banks is that banks may begin tightening up on who qualifies for loans at their institutions. So I'm curious, last bear, and then I'll kick this to the panel at large, what is the potential economic impact of banks tightening their lending standards and ultimately granting less loans? Is the banking issue the last war? Um, I don't know that it's the last war. I think it's absolutely different for a number of reasons, but I think I, I would still remain a little bit more cautious um, because I think that the underlying causes of the the banking issues are are multiple, um, and part of the issue is the the QT program and the Fed is is reducing liquidity across the board and how that sort of gets distributed across. Um, the reverse repo and, and banking sector and whatever plays a huge role in that. Um, but I think that until those sort of, and if the Fed is going to continue driving with QT, I think that there's going to be continued liquidity issues that we see unless there's a, a substantial change elsewhere and sort of how that is getting funded. Um, so I, I remain a little bit cautious on, on that point and I apologize. What was the other question that you would ask? I'm just curious about the potential economic impact of right. banks tightening their lending standards. Yeah, so I, when I look at um, cons, you know, sort of loans, new loan origination over the past, let's say, since the early 2021, so the past two years, you really saw an acceleration going into 2022, um, which makes sense. Obviously, rates were still low at that point, and the economy was improving pretty rapidly with employment gain, gains and whatnot, so it makes sense that uh, credit was also relatively available and expanding. Um, and then you see as rate hikes start to come in, and especially as the larger ones came in through the second half of the year, um, that you really have seen a slowdown in uh, in loan origination. I think it's sort of peaked and is going downhill in terms of the rate of change. Um, it isn't, well, actually, I guess in the last report, it is outright contracting, if, I, if I'm correct on that. Um, but I, I do think that the, the general pace has slowed considerably. Um, and so even if there isn't a huge, um, even if let's just say that the, the March incident was in some way isolated in the near term, um, I think that the overall 
trend is towards tighter credit standards, towards less loan origination. And obviously that plays into both inflation and the economy, um, both in a you know, slower inflation and slower economy. As to whether that impacts sort of headline inflation, I think it's a little bit more challenging to say. I think other things equal, of course, it would lower inflation. But I think going back to sort of the money supply points that Michael raised earlier, we are sort of in a weird point where we had a massive expansion in money supply um, over the past two years. And so we're still kind of getting caught up to that with a sort of normalizing uh, and finding an equilibrium between supply and demand. And loan creation is a, is a relatively smaller part of overall money creation at this point, given the role of, of QE and QT over the past um, couple of years. So that goes back to the, the post I think you were referencing earlier, um, that that we need to look at both the, the Fed policy for sort of money creation and destruction um, in connection, you know, or, or as a in, in combination, I guess, with uh, loan growth for which is sort of the, the traditional measure of how money grows. Thank you, Lasper. Does anybody have anything to add to Lasper's? I would agree that, you know, and I don't mean to say that we're going to have a sort of traditional banking crisis and just kind of have a contagion from here. But I just and, you know, if I, if I could if I knew exactly where the next shoe was going to drop, I probably wouldn't be a journalist. I'd be a trader. But I, I think, you know, the general, you know, the lagged effects of policy have only started to be felt. You know, I think the first real hit was the pension crisis in the U.K., we had this second episode here with this, these regional banks in, in the U.S., and uh, I think the strains are just going to continue to mount as as the year progresses, uh, rather than you know than just dissipate and uh, and lead to another rebound. But uh, maybe I'm being too bearish here. I think also it's it's worth noting that the one of the big drivers, obviously, people were talking about um, held the maturity bond losses that and sort of rates based off the 10-year yield and whatnot. The 10-year the hit its high back in October. So one good thing is that as sort of the market has expected rate cuts, it has actually taken pressure, some amount of pressure off of these duration issues, which is what caused the guilt crisis back in September and is also part of the factors that have led into SVB um, and sort of the, the broader banking uncertainty here in the U.S. And so there is, you, you are in a kind of an interesting situation where the Fed is or sort of, sorry, the market has already kind of priced in rate cuts, which is very helpful um, for financial stability. Um, but it puts the Fed in an awkward position where if they don't follow through on the rate cuts that the market expects, then you could see an increase in long-term yields um, from their currently like deeply inverted level to something that's that's more normal. And in that case, you have all of a sudden all of these you know held to market losses, which are, or sorry, held them in held maturity losses, which have been going down as yields have been going down, start to become an issue again. Um, and you could see things in sort of the, the capital markets, as, as Joseph was mentioning, the CMBS market or the RMBS market, the, you know, all, all these capital markets where a lot of debt origination happens, um, sort of come back into focus. So the Fed is kind of benefiting from the fact that the market thinks it's going to cut and the financial stability elements that come from that. Um, but if they don't follow through, that will bring that back into the fore. Thank you, Las Vegas. So I want to talk a little bit more about, about concerns surrounding banking. 
So many have pointed to net interest margins of banks as a point of concern and that banks may have to pay higher interest expense for their deposits. Joseph, you said recently on Yahoo Finance that banks don't necessarily compete on interest when trying to garner those deposits. With the potential for more Fed rate hikes already towing that line of 5%, should people be worried about these high net interest rate margins, Joseph? So I think there's there's a narrative that as the Fed hikes rates and as people have more concern over the banking system that they'll demand higher deposit rates. And um, so right now, as we can see, the curve is inverted. The short-term interest rates are much higher than longer-dated interest rates. And so uh, perhaps the banks would be in a position where they have negative interest rate margins and that would destroy their profitability and, and put them into a tough situation. That's basically what happened with the SNL crisis a few decades ago. Now, I think that's really unlikely uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that, as you noted, banks don't solely compete for deposits on the basis of interest rates. If you have a chart of uh, the average deposit rate over the past few decades and the Fed policy rate, you'll see that there's not really that much of a connection. Even back before the great financial crises, when rates were about four, four or five percent, deposit rates were still very low. That's because uh, banks, when you when banks are trying to attract depositors, it's not just about the interest rate, it's also about the services they provide, the technology platform, the relationships, uh, and uh, just just the overall you know, marketing, advertising, and so forth. And that's how banks can get away with paying depositors very low interest rates. It's because um, they can provide other things that depositors value. And from the depositor standpoint, most people don't seem to be terribly interested in how much interest the bank pays. If you look across the all deposit accounts, most people don't actually have that much money in their bank. So whether it's 5% or whether it's 2% doesn't make that much of a difference to most depositors. So I don't really see too much of a net interest rate margin squeeze. Another point, and this is really important in understanding how banks work after the great financial crisis, is that banks today are encouraged to use retail depositors as funding. Um, this was as a result of Basel III, which was implemented after the great financial crisis. So even if money market interest rates, short-term interest rates were to go higher, the banks would still be encouraged to rely on uh, retail depositors who are not very interest rate sensitive, which, which they can attract using non-interest rate measures. So uh, I don't really see this an upcoming net interest rate margin squeeze. Of course, the, the deposit rates will go higher. Uh, they always do throughout a rate hiking cycle, but it's hard for me to to think that they will actually go um, like much higher since that's just not how um, historically not how depositors ha have been thinking about this. So any further comments from the panel? I saw last. Yeah, I just wanted to add on that. I, I think that's all right. And when it comes to like bank net interest margins, a bank is not necessarily going to voluntarily give up their own margin by raising their depositor rate on on demand deposits. Um, but I do think that you see uh, a competition for deposits in the form of time deposits, so not immediately withdrawable, but basically CDs or, or things to that extent. Even large, you know, the large banks that people say, you know, have are not trying to attract capital or are still providing healthy rates on, on CDs. So I think there's also a, a 
a little bit more nuance to the question as to, you know, from a bank's perspective, you're deciding whether it makes sense from a profitability perspective to raise your, your rate on your deposit, your entire deposit base by 1% or 2% in order to attract some sort of incremental inflows. Um, it probably doesn't make sense from a cost benefit perspective. Um, and if you're looking and if you really do need sort of financing, you can probably find it in, in other measures, either through um, trying to attract it via time deposits or through other sort of wholesale financing measures. Thank you, Michael. I'd like to hear your thoughts here as well, given the banking discussion. Um, well, I, you know, I think that you've actually seen some of the uh, uh, you know deposit rates at at smaller banks jump up. Um, you know, at at some point, if you do have an issue that you've got big you know HTM losses and and, and and that's okay as long as you don't have deposit flight, then you sort of have to make a management decision about whether you want to, and, and, and we're assuming that you haven't hedged your HTM book um, in any kind of way, which appears to have been the case at some institutions, but not all. Um, but if that's a, a big concern, then you, you kind of have to choose whether you want to die quickly or slowly, and dying by, have, by losing your net interest margin is slow and it's preferable to the other way. So I do think that, you know, um, you, you, you might even be able to use that as sort of a, a, a way to sniff out which banks are really concerned about their own books is to look at the ones that have been really, you know, have rapidly raised their deposit rates to try to hang on to, to deposits. But, um, you know, the, the internal piping of, of some of the uh, bank balance sheets is, is something that I'm not very current on, unfortunately. So this does lead me to the question of where does interest rate volatility come into play? Jim, you recently discussed this on a podcast when you said that despite the fact the current banking crisis has been, quote, reasonably controlled so far, we will at some point get a Minsky moment or a sudden market collapse. Jim, can you walk us through that thought or should we, should we all just be selling vol until the hikes pause? I'm kidding. Of course. But. Yeah, no, the, again, to put that all in context, um, you know, the way markets work, it's, uh, it's not like, um, you know, volatility supply and, uh, the things that ultimately, um, underpin stability. Um, it's not like they they linearly affect outcomes, right? Um, uh, ultimately, it's it's like a, a mound of sand. And other people have, have used these metaphors before. I won't be the first that that starts getting hollowed out, right? Um, at first, it, you wouldn't notice the difference from outside, um, but eventually, it, it doesn't take much, right? The fragility of the system has increased. Um, and the mound of sand will kind of just hits that last piece of sand that is, that, that holds its stability and, and things kind of come apart. What's, what we're seeing is the process of, throughout a lag of higher interest rates removing liquidity, which is a supporting force um, in markets. Um, it, is, it is coming out of the system. And, um, you know, not a surprise that we see the bank run that we saw. That is, that is a symptom of, 
of higher interest rates, less liquidity in the system. Um, now, the question is, um, is how many other, uh, you know, uh, sources of fragility? Where are the, the weakest, who are the weakest players? Where are the weakest spots? What's likely to go wrong and when, right? Um, uh, and so as long as, uh, you know, we don't lower interest rates, uh, we're, we're in the process of seeing this, this massive uh, decrease in liquidity coming out of the system. And again, it plays out through buybacks, the re-rating of venture capital and private equity and real estate, and what that means for collateral, right, ultimately, um, on the books of all kinds of institutions, not just banks. Um, so I think that is the important takeaway. There is a direct connection between liquidity and volatility. Um, and, and this is uh, well documented. You can see it in data as well. But um, And it's not just a function of realized volatility increasing as liquidity decreases, but implied volatility, the, the, uh, the supply of liquidity to markets themselves, right, is also diminishing with higher interest rates. So that is uh, the effect that, that ultimately um, can unpin a market. Um, ironically, these counter-trend rallies that we get um, uh, slide the market to a lower implied volatility um, and given the structural risks and issues um, around, um, will ultimately, you know, historically underpin and allow people to, uh, entities to come in and, uh, you know, uh, ultimately push vol higher, often in a non-volatile environment. And that often precedes a decline and, and exacerbates the unpinning. So there, you know, that, again, I've been talking about this for a month or so now, is generally the process that you would expect to see before a decline. So the more this market squeezes, the more people believe they're, they, you know, I get the call, I'm getting the calls right now and I got them last time we started pushing up against these levels. Have I missed it? How do I reallocate? What does the timing look like, Jim? What, you know, and, you know, I did great here, <laughs> right? Um, in a, in a poor market, but if the market starts rallying, I have to buy back in. It forces entities back in. Um, and ultimately, uh, the, the, you know, the fragility now being where it is, is ultimately just stretching a rubber band um, that, that is likely to create a, a bigger problem. That's generally how these things work and, and where we are in the process. But again, like these other assets, volatility acts with a lag um, of interest rates. Does anybody have any comments on what Jim said, maybe on the topic of unpinning? So, all right, what I like to do here towards the tail end of these spaces is just kind of go down the line of panelists to get kind of your final thoughts and any feedback on any topics that have been discussed throughout the pan of this space. Uh, feel free to digress. And as always, please feel more than welcome to plug anything you're working on and anything you have coming out in your respective fields. Uh, really would like to get people pointed in all of your direction to continue learning about these topics from you. So without further ado on that, let's start with Pedro here. I would love to hear your closing thoughts and any comments you have on any topic at all that we've discussed today. And please, Pedro, feel free to plug anything you're working on. 
Absolutely. Well, thanks again for having me. And uh, I guess my final thought would be that it's, you know, it's kind of fascinating that Chair Powell had just, if you if you look back at the at the press conference of the February first meeting before we the banking crisis kind of began, Fed Chair Powell had just managed after all this talking to finally convince markets to take those rate cuts off the table. Uh, and of course, we had this banking turmoil that brought us right back to this major disconnect between what the market is pricing in and what Fed officials want them to price in. And I think that the resolution of that kind of conundrum, that disconnect, is going to have major implications for financial markets. And I think that all that the, the banking turmoil did is kind of widen the band of uncertainty in what was, what was already a, a deeply, deeply uncertain world where the range of outcomes is extremely wide. And so now we have to balance the risk that inflation will be sticky and that wages are going to keep growing at a pace that's that makes Fed officials uncomfortable with the possibility that even if the banking turmoil is over, that there's been enough of a scare and that people are now hyper conscious of where their money is, that there will be some kind of credit contraction toward the latter half of the year that might be, you know, substantially disinflationary. So I guess the final thought is that, you know, we have no idea where this is going, but I would say that because Jay Powell's kind of legacy is on the line, that he will be inclined to keep fighting inflation as long as there's not an immediate, you know, urgent market meltdown that, that requires, you know, complete reversal of policy. But I would, again, caution people against thinking that the Fed is going to blink at the first sign uh, of economic weakness. And I would argue that it would take significant financial instability for the Fed to actually reverse course this year. As far as plugging my work, I just urge everybody to tune into, uh, you know, to check out Market News, our website. We have frequent exclusive interviews with current and former policymakers on the subjects that we discussed today. And also check out my podcast, which is called Fed Speak and is available uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Beautiful. Thank you for coming, Pedro. And definitely check that podcast out, folks. I, uh, I was listening to a couple of those yesterday as well in preparation of the space. And I like to tune in every now and again as well. It's just priceless information, I would say, and really good discussion. Thank you, Pedro. Joseph, any closing thoughts here on topics discussed and anything you're working on? Feel free to plug, as always. So I agree with Pedro how the disconnect between the Fed's expected, well, the, the Fed's SEP uh, path of policy for the next coming months and where the market is pricing how that resolves is, is going to be the key to asset prices in the coming months. So when I take a step back and I, and I take a look at the economy, GDP is growing at, so according to now casting, about 2% for the first quarter of this year. Inflation's at 6%, so you have nominal GDP of 8%. So that, that's, you know, that's obviously an economy that's doing fine. At the same time, you have the labor market, pretty strong wages going higher. The totality of this doesn't really suggest to me that rate cuts would be warranted. Uh, Chair Powell, as Pedro noted, worked hard to get the market to price out rate cuts earlier in the year, and not all those rate cuts are back in, uh, plus, uh, plus interest. So uh, in the coming months, I think that there's a real possibility that we could see these implied rate cuts bring down the borrowing costs of a broad segment of interest rate sensitive sectors and seeing those sectors reaccelerate again. So in a sense, 
pricing and rate cuts is self-defeating and kind of forces the Fed to kind of stay higher for longer because it makes inflation more persistent. I'm not worried about the banking sector at all. I'm, I agree with the Fed that uh, what happened was much more idiosyncratic. When you take a step back, it seems like the banks that had problems were the banks that were affiliated with crypto, uh, which we know had, had its problems and also were badly managed as well. So I, I don't think this will be a broad systemic impact. We are definitely fighting the last war. So um, my expectation is that uh, rates would stay higher for longer, and that has impacts to asset pricing, uh, perhaps in the line of what Jim is suggesting, that we may have more downside to, to uh, riskier assets going forward. Uh, so if you're interested in my work, I have a website, fedguy.com, where I blog about the markets. And on it, you will also find other things that I do. I have a best-selling book on Amazon called Central Banking 101 and a series of courses that I where I teach about uh, macro trading asset markets. So fedguy.com if you're interested. Fedguy.com, folks. You're going to learn a lot from Joseph. Jem, I would love to hear your final thoughts, maybe any responses to anything that's been said so far, perhaps what Joseph just closed out with, and anything you're working on you got coming out? Yeah, I'd like to start by just saying, you know, I'd like to echo what, what Pedro was saying. If you, you – know, lots happened in a month, it feels like. If you just pull back the clock a month and uh, look back at where the Fed was and where interest rates were a month ago, the Fed was in the process of trying to – uh, again, uh, flatten uh, expectations on the back of the curve. They were trying to get equity markets and speculation out of the market. Uh, they were essentially out there uh, trying to raise interest rate expectations. Um, here we are a month forward with interest rates uh, dramatically lower, uh, you know, expectations of, 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 uh, of cuts coming back half of the year, um, you know, with speculation, uh, you know, Bitcoin with speculative assets uh, screaming. Um, you know, if you think the Fed is, is just going to, you know, not worry about the wealth effect in equity markets, not worry about uh, the effect of, of lower interest rates on a spring uh, economy, you know, a, a spring coming with, with, you know, construction kind of right in, and building right in the middle, like, um, I think – you were kind of willfully whistling by the graveyard. Um, you know, the reality is this is not what the Fed wants. Um, you know, uh, just because they went and, uh, you know, secured depositors in a bank run, it does not mean the world has dramatically changed. So, um, you know, don't try and stay away from the narratives. Uh, you know, focus on the picture. Um, and I would expect that the Fed has some very, very interesting things to say. And then later today, um, as well as uh, in, you know, its upcoming early May Fed meeting. So those those moments are becoming more and more important. As you get into May in the back half of the year, the liquidity is also coming out of um, a lot of uh, assets. So to just be watchful, be be cognizant that we scream here, and it's actually uh, generally the exact thing you were looking for uh, before um, a broader liquidation. Um, in terms of us, Kai Volatility backslash Kai.com uh, news is where you can get kind of updates of what we're uh, talking about, what we're looking at. We run a family of funds, uh, hedge funds that are non-correlated, uh, liquid, tax advantage, yield, and inflation hedge. So really, kind of, uh, you know, what we believe is is the type of funds that are um, that are that are 
should perform well in, in, in kind of the decade to come. Wealth advisory firms, well, anybody who's interested in that stuff, please, please reach out and, and, and take a look at our website. Uh, and and you, there's a place where you can reach out to us there. Thanks for having me. Wonderful conversation as always. Yeah, thanks for coming, Jim, as always. Definitely give Jim a follow. Check out Kai Volatility. Uh, I don't think you, I don't think y'all realize who aren't following him yet, how much you're missing out on not getting your daily dose of croissant with a side of jam. So thank you, Jim. Last bear. Anything? Yeah, I think I would just maybe end on, on the point of, of thinking about what the looking at the feds actions rather than their words. Um, and I think what they've shown over the past year or so or, or two years is that, um, when it comes to issues of financial stability or financial stress, they move incredibly quickly and with a lot of force. And by contrast, it took them quite some time to move on inflation. I think that there's enough signs that inflation has started to come down across a number of different segments um, that I would expect that this re- that this hiking cycle um, is either is either done um, or will be done after the next meeting. Um, I don't know about cuts going out in the future. I think that would require um, a really significant economic or start to, starting to see actual negative, you know, real economic growth um, over the coming year for that to happen, in which case it's, it's a bad outcome for everybody, I think. Um, but I would just, I, I think that the, the Fed is more concerned um, than, than they might let on to about um, the effects of the monetary policy on financial stability and I think do in their heart of hearts believe that they're sort of, um, you know, that the inflation battle is, is more than halfway done. So um, that's just kind of my perspective. If you want to follow me um, here on Twitter, please do. Also, please follow my sub stack. So I, I put out a, uh, a new article, long form article every single Friday at 8 a.m. Eastern. So thanks, guys, for having me on. It's always a fantastic conversation. Always fantastic having you, Last Bear, and definitely go check out his Substack, everybody. He has a great writing voice, keeps things interesting, and and honestly, everybody up here is really good at breaking down some of these some of these complex topics in a pretty good, understandable layman way. And so, definitely check out that Substack, folks. Michael, last but not least, man, thanks again for coming and gracing us with your expertise here. Do you have anything you want to add that you maybe weren't able to touch on earlier? And please feel free to plug anything you're working on. Sure. So I, I, I appreciate the invitation. It was it was uh, fun to be here. I, I you know, um, I think more than a lot of the other people on the panel, I'm I, I was quiet at times because I'm I'm busy drilling deep, deep, deep into the into this CPI uh, uh, number, and, and and I actually during the CPI right after CPI, you know, we release a lot of charts on our uh, on, on my uh, subscriber only Twitter feed, and um, where you know so you you get the charts, you get the analysis, sort of in you know quasi real time, and I later put that out on our. Um, you know, on the inflation blog and, and, um, and talk about it in the inflation guy podcast, but, but some people like to have it in real time. And, and, and so just to sort of wrap up CPI, um, uh, kind of the big picture observations here is that, um, the, the, the good news here was really a lot about housing, um, and, and the much lower rents number, which is going to push down, median inflation this month um but but the year-on-year rents figures still went up which sort of which tells you that that this might be some march 
issue. It may be a seasonal issue. And so I'd want to get at least a little bit more data before we, we declare an end to sort of the housing inflation problem. Um, it is interesting that core was as high as it was, in fact, when you when you say there was a big miss on rents and and that used car inflation was down when it was expected to be up because of all the private surveys saying used car prices are are rising. So so the distribution of inflation is still not not terribly uh, uh, pleasing and accommodating. Super core is decelerating, but not very fast. Um, and there's still an awful lot of work to do on on inflation. That being said, you know, I think the Fed is is probably done or close to done. Um, you know, one of the things you always want to look at when when you're looking at data is not and, and thinking about the central bank is it's not just what's the data telling us, but is that data consistent with what their models suggest that they would have been expecting? And and so even though I'm I don't know that this number is really as good as it looks, because it does appear to be mostly housing, um, I, you know, that's still in line with the expectations that the Fed had that we were going to see a deceleration in rents. And so this, you know, will encourage them to believe that that disinflation process really has started. Um, so I, I do think that the Fed is either done hiking rates or maybe have has one more symbolic one. I don't know. I will say that I don't, I don't see any reason for rate cuts um, without a crisis happening. Uh, neutral policy is going to end up being, you know, new, neutral. A neutral long-term interest rate is something roughly equivalent to long-term growth of the economy uh, plus long-term target inflation. So that puts you at four and a half or five percent. And short rates maybe should be slightly lower than that. But, but the Fed's not going to. When the Fed does start easing. They're not going to ease to zero again. Um, and I think that when we write the story about Powell, one of the things we'll say that's, um, that praises him is that he, he did manage to finally get rates back up to something approximating normal. And that's actually probably good news. Um, you know, plug in my own stuff. I already talked about the subscriber only Twitter, you know, the inflation guy blog and podcast. Um, you know, um, I haven't mentioned that. You know, I have uh, an investment management company, Enduring Investments, and, and we do kind of anything inflation consulting, asset management, wealth advisory, and uh, and so on. So, um, you know, if you if you uh, Google Ashton Inflation, you'll find me all over. If you look for anything that says Inflation Guy, you'll likely find me. And um, I, I try to engage on, on lots of different channels as much as possible. Again, thanks for, for having me on. And thanks for coming, Michael. Definitely check out his blog, everybody. I, I read that recent rekindling of your Felix Curve piece from back in September of 2017. Uh, really good piece there, revisiting that. So thank you for everything, Michael. Thank you for coming. Thank you. All right, everybody. If you came in late or you feel like you missed anything, you didn't miss anything at all. This was recorded. It will be released later today as an Unusual Whales podcast on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. Make sure you're following everybody up here. That, in my opinion, the best way to keep up to date on how things are panning out in the macro econ world, especially relating to inflation and the Fed. 
As far as upcoming Unusual Whale spaces, this Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, we'll be having our usual Sunday night flow live with some day traders going over how to track flow and setups for plays going into the next week. Beyond that, we'll have a special treat in the form of an Unusual Whale space discussing politics and finance. This will be within the next two weeks, but there's no slotted time yet. So keep your eyes on the Unusual Whales Twitter page for the date and time of that space. We're hoping to have a really good discussion about politics and finance and how they work together, whether that's good or bad. Hopefully we'll have some politicians and big business minds for this discussion. So stay tuned, folks. We will catch you on the next one. Thank you all of our speakers for being here and have a great rest of your day, everybody. Thanks for coming.